Luke 12 that we've just read is really all about practical Christianity. But all the time, the Lord keeps on bringing us back to the reality of the fact that he will come again. And that all our lives are in that sense to be lived in that perspective. Knowing that one day we will meet Jesus. One day you and I will actually meet him. We will stand before him and we will come before his judgment. So it's not going to be possible for us to say, okay, that was just a part of my life, I've resigned, I'm out of here, no, that was an interesting part of my life, but no, I've moved on, I'm resigned, I'm not involved with that anymore. No, we have been chosen to be God's people. We are God's family. And from that point of view, looking at it, I suppose, negatively, we are responsible to him, and we therefore, to put it negatively, can't get out of coming before the final judgment. But of course, we are not of them that draw back, but of them that believe, as we read in Hebrews. So then, we will meet Jesus, and that is an amazing reality, that we will meet him, that one day all the laws of physics and etc. will come to an end and the Lord Jesus will come from heaven and the feet of Jesus of Nazareth will again stand upon this earth. And this planet upon which we live, the land that we walk over, this will all one day be in his kingdom. And by his grace, we really will be there. Now all this has huge implications and Luke 12 is really a list of those implications. He says in uh, Luke 12, verse 1, well, we're told in Luke 12, verse 1, that there was a, a huge crowd of people, but Jesus actually turned around and spoke specifically to the disciples. And he, it says that he, he said to them, first of all, or most importantly, beware of hypocrisy. Now, that's a, a strange sort of priority, if you like, to say, well, above all, watch out for hypocrisy. We might say, yeah, hypocrisy is a bad thing, but, but the Lord is really maxing out on this point. Beware, first of all, of the danger of hypocrisy. And he says that it's like yeast. That is that once it starts in a person or in a community, it spreads, it influences others. Once one person starts being hypocritical, other people start as well. And he, he gives a reason. He says, because there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, or hid that shall not be known. Whatever you've said in the darkness is going to be heard in the light. What you've spoken in the inner chambers is going to be proclaimed from the housetops. Now that doesn't happen in this life. You can say what you want privately and secretly and maybe no one will ever know. Things are covered up. And yet this must therefore be talking about the, the situation at the Lord's return. That at the day of judgment, in one sense, in some sense, the judgment that we will each go through will in some way, and how physically, practically it works out is, is not even worth speculating, I think, but in some way, our judgment will be public. We will see each other being judged and our lives in some sense being openly revealed and judged by the Lord Jesus. And we will somehow be spectators there. That's why in Revelation it says that the rejected will have shame. Well, you have shame in the context of persons, in front of others. And so it seems that we will see the rejection of the the rejected. And their shame and their walking naked, as it were, will be in our eyes. The hypocrites will be, be revealed. And so what the Lord is saying is, look, ultimately, there is going to come this day when you stand before me and all your secrets are going to be revealed. And not, I think, only in in a negative sense, that like all your skeletons in the cupboard are, are going to come dancing out of the cupboard, but in a positive sense as well, that all that which is hidden, the hidden things of the human heart, as Paul tells the Corinthians, are going to be revealed in that day. And there's an awful lot of good motivation amongst all all God's children, it seems to me, that is not recognized by their brethren. All that is going to be revealed. And so what the Lord is saying is there's no point in being hypocritical. There's no point in acting one way in front of some people and then another way in front of others, because 
bear in mind the ultimate moment, which is when you stand before me in the last day and all the, the hidden things of darkness are going to be revealed. And so, if we really believe that, and if we believe that we're actually going to live for eternity, forever and ever, in the light, then what is the point in being hypocritical in this life? In thinking, well, I don't want them to see this, so I, I will say this publicly, but underneath I think this, so I say to my friends, my family, this, but I will show that to, to the world. This is pointless, the Lord is saying, because remember that day when all these things will be revealed. And he goes on in the next ten verses or so to talk about one thing in particular, and that is witness before other people. And so many times, of course, we, we, we are shy to witness in front of others. And in the first century context, it was more than a case of being shy. It was a case that I could seriously be persecuted or even killed because of my witness. And so there was a, a huge tendency, just as there is in every generation, in every context, to live our secular lives and say, well, that's my secular life, but my, my religious life, well, that's something different. That's my private business. That, that's the, uh, the attitude that one meets in the world all the time. That what's my religious life, that's my private business. But in secular life, I'm another person. And this is not, this is not how we should be living. And so, again, in this context of holding the final day of the Lord's coming and judgment and the eternity of God's kingdom, holding that as, as our guiding light, as our uh, point of perspective, he says in verse 8, Whoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denies me in the presence of men shall be denied in the presence of the angels of God. And so this language of son of man, confessing, angels of God, this is all the language of, of judgment. So I think he's saying that when we're in a situation before men, where we have the choice to either openly state our positions and stand up, as it were, for our belief in the coming of the Lord, our, our love of the Lord Jesus, our love of his kingdom, that we are, we are staking our lives not only on his existence, but upon his return to the earth and, and our eternity in his kingdom. When we come to those moments, we are, as it were, having a, a preview of the day of judgment. And we make the answer now, as the hymn says. All right, there will be a, a judgment in that sense, but the ultimate judge, in one sense, is God, but in another sense, it is us, that we are our own judges. We are sorting out our own eternal destiny by how we behave in this life. And so these opportunities, these situations that, that arise to confess him before men, th these come in all sorts of ways. And it's not only in the workplace, as we might imagine. They come in, even in, in the life that we have amongst our brothers and sisters. They, they come at times. Where do we want to stand up for that which is true, for that which we know to be right, or do we want to just act the smart way, the political way, in front of people? It can happen in a shop. It can happen just with a neighbor. It can happen in family life. Are we going to stand up for the hope of the kingdom in front of others? And in those moments, we are, as it were, standing before the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, and the angels of God, Judgment Day, as it were, has come, focused, zoomed right up to us. And he says, fear not, verse 7, you have more value than many sparrows. And the idea, and the, as I say, the whole context is about witness fearlessly. And he's saying, well, don't, don't worry. What have you got to fear? Because ultimately, you are going to be in the kingdom. And that's why he, he emphasizes later on in the chapter, fear not, little flock, verse 32, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You will be in the kingdom. And because of that, he's saying, so don't worry about what people think. He's very gentle. He recognizes that it's quite natural to, to fear the, the, the eyes of men, the raised eyebrows, the tut-tut, the uh, shaking of the head, and of course far worse in the first century context and in, in some parts of the world today. But he's saying, 
ultimately your reaction is going to be a foretaste of your judgment. And so he, he goes on about this, encouraging all of us to, to witness fearlessly because of that day that is coming and that eternal day when all will be out in the open. And then verse 13, one of the multitude says to him, Master, bid my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. It's totally out of sync with what Jesus has just been saying. You know how it is sometimes you're talking to, very earnestly to somebody and then they, they, they go off at a right tangent and, and you think like, well, they obviously weren't paying any attention to what I was saying. That was very important to me, what I, I'd just been explaining for the last 10 minutes and a guy goes right off at a tangent about something else. So it's talking about the weather or something. And, and this is quite common in the Gospels. Notice all the times this happens. There's some, uh, some homework for you. All the times that this happens, when the Lord is teaching something and the disciples or the crowd say something or ask a question that is, shows they're totally out of sync with what he's just been saying. And it's so sad that having said all that about the last day, his coming, fearless witness, don't be hypocrites because think of the day when everything will be open, the guy just starts talking about some petty material dispute here on earth about money and goods and back down to very earthly things. That reminds me really of the ultimate tragedy, really, that when the Son of God is dying for, for our sins, right at the very end there, the soldiers are there sitting at the foot of the cross, playing with, with dice, uh, arguing about who's going to have the Lord's shoes and coat and stuff like that. Petty materialism right in the face of the dying of the Son of God. And uh, you know, this happens in our lives, in our hearts, in our communities so often that in the face of these ultimate realities all we're worried about is some totally petty material thing but the Lord brings the situation uh, back to his theme which is his return and the ultimate reality and he gives this parable about the, the rich man who builds the greater barns and uh, Let's uh, go through that from 16. Uh, the, this rich man had good ground and it brought forth plentifully. 17, he reasoned within himself, saying to himself. Uh, and it's interesting how the Lord realized that self-talk is so critical. He analyzes this man's self-talk because that is the root of, of our actions in practice. And I used to think I, I was crazy because I, I talked to myself until I realized that actually that's what everybody does, that that's actually part of being human. And it's the control of that self-talk which is so important. Now, if you have a, a pen, I suggest that you circle some words in verse 17 and, and 18, 19. Okay, what shall I do? I. Because I, circle I, have not where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, myself, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy is totally self-obsessed. Me, me, me. I, I, I. My soul, myself. And we live in a world which, after the breakup of the large extended family that's happened in the last couple of hundred years, pretty well all over the world, there's still a few areas holding out, but basically the extended family is breaking up. We're living in, a, in a, an age of individualism such as never been in the whole of human history where this sort of selfish self-obsession, implying that the story seems to imply the guy's alone, he's lonely, he seems to just be talking about himself, there's no mention of a family or anything, uh, this sort of total self-obsession with me, myself and I, and all my possessions, this becomes absolutely obsessive with people. So if ever there was a story that's relevant to our, our day and age, I think it's, it's this. You'll notice in verse 18, another two words you might like to underline. If you circled all the others, you might like to underline these. 
uh, in the Old English, bestow. There will I bestow. It's the word gather. There will I gather all my fruits. Uh, So the word bestow or gather. And he says, I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones. The word barns. When you look at these two words, to gather into barns, Yes, fair enough, they, they do occur a bit, a bit later in this same chapter where in this context the Lord says that uh, the birds of the air, verse 24, they don't gather into bounds, but God still feeds them. Uh, but the other references to these two words together, where they gather, gathering into bounds, is always used about how the Lord Jesus will gather the faithful into the barn of his kingdom. And if you want to just scribble them down, Matthew 3.12, Matthew 3.12, Matthew 13.30, 13.30, and Luke 3.17, Luke 3.17. I would suggest, because the context is about witness and not being fearful to witness to the world uh, in the light of the fact that all will be open when Jesus comes back, and I would suggest that what the Lord is saying is instead of building up your, your big barns and gathering all your wealth into your barns, you should have been gathering my people into my kingdom. Because when we're told the Lord Jesus will gather the faithful into his barn, his barn is like a symbol of the kingdom, his kingdom. And that's why I think later on in uh, 31, we're told, but rather seek his kingdom, the RV says. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. The implication is, don't build up your own kingdom, but seek his kingdom. If I say to you, do you believe in the coming of the kingdom of God? We'd all put our hands up, I think, and say, yes, believe in the coming of the kingdom. God's kingdom on earth. Yes, sir. But we have to put meaning into those words. And if we believe that God's kingdom is coming and that our eternal destiny will be in his kingdom, then we are not to build up our kingdom on this earth after our own image and likeness, gathering all our wealth into our barns, but to gather his people into his barn. And so that's the choice that we have, to to give our lives to our career, to our savings, etc., or to gather his people into, into his barn, into his kingdom. And of course we say, we all like to say, well, I, I'm a balanced man. I, I like to be balanced. Uh, yes, well, you know, can't be, uh, can't, can't be too materialistic, but, but you know, you know you, you've got to be careful, blah, blah, blah. You've got to watch out for tomorrow. You've got to be responsible, you know. And <laughs> yes, of course, that, I don't like to say this, but, but yeah, there's some truth in that. I mean, yes. Unfortunately, we live in the last uh, century or so in a world where we have moved away from growing our own food and being self-sufficient. We've moved into a cash economy where I do accept things are different to how they were for the majority of human history. But all the same, this is why living in the last days is so difficult, isn't it? Uh, because it's so different to, to the world against which the Lord Jesus is speaking all these parables. But the principles obviously have got to be taken seriously. But yeah, are we giving our lives to gathering his people into his kingdom? Is that the paramount driver in, in our motivations? Or is it all about building up my family, business, whatever, career, whatever it might be? And, of course, he says, verse 20, God says to him, You fool, this night your soul is required of you. And whose shall those things be which you have provided? Now, we know that Jesus will come back, and then there will be the judgment. That is, we die, we're unconscious, Jesus comes back, resurrection, judgment. But here it seems to imply that the uh, requiring of the man's life is actually at his death. I think the implication of that then is that, okay, in the ultimate sense, there there will be, from that man's point of view, 
no real gap between his death and his judgment because we die, the next thing we know, Jesus is back, resurrection and judgment. But I think it's put like that to remind us that when we die, that's it, that's lights out, that's the end, that we've had our opportunity and that is when the requirement of our life in that sense comes before us because we will next moment we will be at the day of judgment and the question whose will all those things be that you have prepared it's as if maybe in his final moments this man is made to realize his folly that we read so often in Ecclesiastes that the rich man dies and leaves it all behind and so does the poor man doesn't matter what you leave behind, you leave something behind. But you can take it with you. Uh, this is so basic. And the point is this foolish man realized that when it was too late, seconds, nanoseconds maybe, before he died and it was lights out and that was the end. And the whole point obviously is that if we bear in mind the perspective of the day of judgment and the eternity of God's kingdom, we are to learn that lesson now in this life and not on your deathbed in the death seconds when it's, when it's too late. He had provided or prepared all these things and they were just going to go to somebody else. Get the same word in verse 47. That servant which knew his Lord's will and did not prepare himself shall be beaten with many stripes. The point is, he should have prepared himself. This man was there preparing all his wealth and riches. And this is the problem, isn't it? That in a material world, and we are living in the materialistic age without compare uh, in the 21st century, in a world that thinks that what you have is who you really are, there is no understanding of this, that we are not to prepare material things for ourselves, we are to prepare ourselves. Because what does God want? God does not want, a, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills are his. He doesn't in, its, in itself need our supposed wealth. He wants us. You know, as a kid, young guy, I was baptized, I opened my Bible at random. So I was there drying myself off after I'd been baptized. I thought maybe God has something for me. And I came to that verse that says, My son, give me your heart. And isn't that what it's all about? My son, give me yourself. You know, we don't want, he doesn't want all whatever we can prepare. It's not as if, well, Lord, I'll just go and build up my career, build up my business, uh, and then I'll be able to serve you. This is totally missing the point. And I hear this said so often. And it concerns me no end because... What we're asked to give God is not all that material stuff. It is ourselves. That's what has to be prepared. Verse 33. Sell what you've got and give alms. Provide for yourselves bags or purses which will not become old. A treasure in the heavens that fails not. So then, how do we provide, prepare for ourselves, or prepare, prepare ourselves, by giving to others. It's, the whole thing is inverted, is turned right on its head. It's not a case of preparing for myself. Because, I, I mean, the, uh, the barns and the storehouses, I mean, this is bank accounts, this is money hidden under the bed, be it, you know, a few dollars, be it, be it thousands, hundreds of thousands, properties, uh, etc., No, we are to give to others and this is the treasure in heaven which will not become old. And I take that as meaning that every act of generosity, of giving, of genuine giving, of kindness, somehow remains pristine in heaven. That is, God does not forget. It will not be tarnished with the passage of time. God remembers 
And because when we die, ultimately we are forgotten to some degree, no matter how generous we were, in the passage of the centuries we are forgotten. But let's not think that that happens to God. God remembers that night, let's say a Thursday night, at half past eight in the evening, when you went round to that sister's place, or that young brother's place, and put that envelope through his or her letterbox with whatever was in it. That act, let's say, and there's a whole stack of acts of generosity we can do that are nothing to do with money. Uh, that remains absolutely like it happened just a second ago with God. The passage of time will not dull that at all. Building up our bank accounts, our, our wealth, our whatever possessions, this, this all passes away. So there's this idea of being rich toward God in verse 21. Don't lay up treasure for yourself, but be rich toward God. But he defines what he means by rich toward God by saying, 33, sell what you've got and give it to the poor. To be rich towards God is to be rich towards those to whom you give. The poor in whatever way, not only financially poor, but it can be spiritually poor, emotionally poor, relationally poor, or, or whatever. Poor, I mean, in terms of uh, relationships. That is being rich toward God. This is the whole point of what John makes in his letters, that if you love God, you will love his children. If you love God, you love your brethren. You cannot love God and, and not love your, your brethren. The parallel is very strong there. And so he, he says, verse 23, the, the life, and I think he means the eternal life of God's kingdom, is more than food and the body is more than clothes. We will live eternally in some kind of bodily form, I, I, I guess, as the Lord Jesus has some sort of uh, bodily uh, existence. I know we're under the tyranny of words in talking about this, but... Uh, we will exist as persons, let's put it like that. And so, 23, he's saying that that life and that body is far more than all the food and clothes of, of this life. God has in any case promised, Jesus is saying, that he will give you the basics. He will give you the food and clothes. As David said, he had never seen the seed of the righteous actually starving. And I, I have not either. And I spent most of my life living in, in the poorer world. And I have never seen God's true children ultimately, ultimately, really totally without food or without clothes. Might have come pretty close there, but they never actually were. And he says that God will provide these things. Seek first his kingdom. 31, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I think it's an allusion there to Israel and the wilderness, that they went through the wilderness and their clothes didn't get old and God fed them every day with food. Those bare basics God has promised to give us. And I see no reason to doubt that he'll, he'll do that. But you of little faith, he says, verse 28. And that's actually quite a, a common term that the Lord uses about the disciples three times in Matthew he, he uses it about them and here's a separate occasion, the fourth time he says you of little faith he saw how little their faith was and yet he also says later on in Luke 17 verse 6 that if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, that is a little faith you can move mountains so I don't think he was mocking by saying you of little faith like you dumbos not at all. He's saying, you have got faith. It's only a little faith. But then he says in 17 verse 6, and if you've got that little faith, you can move mountains. So although we all feel so inadequate, faced with these challenges, with, with this very large, a huge, colossal, really, challenge to our lifestyle and our living and our worldviews and our whole attitudes, he's saying, okay, but you are of little faith. You do get it, don't you? But he says, 29, but don't seek, don't worry what you shall eat or what you shall drink. 
And he's actually quoting there from the Septuagint of Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 20 and 21, which is talking about the Jubilee. Now, what happened with the, uh, the Jubilee year was that um, <clears throat> Israel, uh, every seventh year, let the land go, go fallow, and then <clears throat> there was a, every 49th year, there, there was a great, uh, the great Jubilee, when the, the land was uh, again fallow. And God says there in Leviticus 25, don't worry what you're going to eat, because people would have said, well, if we don't sow this year, what are we going to eat next year? And God recognized their weakness, so sensitive, I love that about him, so sensitive to our weakness, foreseeing what we're going to say. And God says there in Leviticus 25, don't worry, I'll give you enough. I'll give you a bumper harvest the year before, and you'll have enough. So keep my commandment, uh, give the land back to whoever it originally belonged to, forgive people their debts, forgive them everything, and don't worry what you're going to eat or drink. It's all going to be okay. And the Lord Jesus is quoting that and saying, <clears throat> that is the spirit in which you should live all the time. When it looks like, humanly speaking, you will not have anything to eat. Like you know, People of Israel would say, well, we're not going to sow this year. You say we can't use the land, we've got to let it lie fallow this year. What are we going to eat next year? And that's the whole theme of what Jesus is saying. Don't worry. It will be all right. God will provide. And of course, the ultimate jubilee again is in the coming of Jesus. And I wouldn't be surprised that the Lord Jesus comes on a jubilee year. But that's, uh, that's another story. But the point is, he will come. And because of that, we should be living constantly in that spirit of, of expectation. That he will come and therefore we needn't worry. Because he's promised he'll provide. And he will come, come through on that promise. So he says, 35... You should have your loins girded about and your lights burning, allusion there to the Passover. We should try to have that intensity of the Passover night all our lives. Now that, that again is a very, very high challenge. Ready to go. There were Israel and Egypt that night just waiting for the call. Just waiting to go with their loins girded and their lamps burning. And that, the Lord is saying, is how we should be. Now, it's so important that we are ready to go at any moment. That when the Lord comes, we're immediately ready to go. That great, he's back. With not a backward glance. Not like Lot's wife, who's quoted as an example to us in the last days, who, who uh, looked back behind her uh, and thinking like, oh wow, my new kitchen what a shame. Whatever it was. Our donkey or our new house or our new whatever they had. Pillar of salt. She looked back. And we don't want to be like that. We're warned by her example. Now, Jesus tells another parable about the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25. And there he says that actually when the bridegroom comes, all of them slumber and sleep and that's very sobering because I think that parable is talking specifically about the last days that the last generation and that I believe could well be us the last generation before the Lord comes will actually be slumbering and sleeping when 1 Thessalonians 5 says let us not sleep but let us be awake, and Jesus says here, let your loins be girded about and your lamps burning, always in the middle of the night, even waiting for your master to come back. Matthew 25 says that unfortunately, even the, the wise virgins will not make that. They will slumber, and their lamps will not be burning at all brightly, and the only way that they're saved is because they're humble enough to realize that actually they're not in a very good state, and their, lights, their lamps are likely to go out, so they took some more oil with them for that eventuality. So they're saved by grace and by their own recognition that actually they're not likely to be as burning brightly as they should be and as they'd like to be. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 that all those that love the Lord's appearing will be saved. I take that to mean that if we really, truly love his appearing, 
that is an indicator that we're going to be saved. Why? Because, for example, you can only truly love his appearing if you have a good conscience, if you've repented of your sins. If you don't think, ah, oh, no, you know, Jesus is going to come back one day and I'm going to have to answer for how I've lived and what I've done. Yikes. No. If we've repented and we're clean and clear with God, then we can't wait for him to come back. We can't wait for Jesus to come. We're told, 36, that when he comes and knocks, we've got to open to him immediately. That implies that there is an element of choice when the Lord first comes in whether we immediately go to be with him. He's going to send his angels to gather us. And so I suggest that the first we'll know that the Lord has come is an angel standing there in front of us. Maybe a ding-dong on the, on the doorbell, and there's an angel. Or just zap in front of us. He's back. And in that split moment, in that split second, when we actually realize, wow, he, Jesus has come, I think that will really be the ultimate decider. Those who will go immediately will be saved. Because that desire to go immediately is uh, a reflection of so many, many factors that they have good conscience, they, they love the Lord Jesus, they are looking for his coming, they, they want to be in his kingdom, they believe they will be there, etc., etc. Whereas in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, okay, the cry goes out, the trumpet sounds as it were, and the cry goes up, he's back, and the foolish virgins look at their lamps and say, okay... Coming later, just a minute. And they run off to try and buy some oil. And they, they come late. And he says, I don't know who you are. So I think there will be an element of choice as to whether we go immediately or whether we think, oh, just must spiritually, as it were, put my makeup on and, or whatever it is, put my tie on and put my jacket on. I must just get myself ready and, yeah, and I'll be coming. Or whether we're like, wow, he's back, great, waiting for this moment all of my life. And off we, we go. That's how we should be. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, I, in this life, right now, stand at the door and knock. And if any man open to me, I will come in and dwell with him. So again, in a sense, every time the Lord is knocking on our door in our lives, on our conscience, we have the opportunity to have a a foretaste of the day of judgment. And he knocks on our doors in all kinds of ways, through situations, through people we meet, uh, need that we encounter, trials of our patience. This is him knocking. And if we immediately open, say, yeah, this is the Lord's hand, sure, I will go, then we are, as it were, preparing ourselves in dry run, as it were, for the final moment when we will figure, he's back. Could be we already died, but okay, they will, the angel will stand, and he's back. You're resurrected. Huh. You're going to go straight away? So it's not just for the last generation. Jesus is so earnest that we should have that immediacy of, of response that he tells uh, an unusual story, a parable in 37. He says that there's this Lord who's left his servants watching, and when he comes back and he finds they're watching and waiting for him and aware of his return, he's so thrilled that they're watching that he girds himself and makes them sit down to meet and comes forth and serves them. Now, that was a totally unusual thing to do. A master never, ever would have done that, would have girded himself like a servant, like a slave, and got hold of his slaves and said, I'm so thrilled, guys, that you're waiting for me. I'm going to make you a meal, and I'm going to come forth and serve you. And that's why you can put a circle around the word make there in 37. He'll have to make them sit down, because they're going to be so surprised. What, are you serving us? No. Yeah, yeah, sit down. I'm going to come and serve you. And this is where it all comes somehow relevant to the breaking of bread, because this is talking about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and we're going to have a meal with him. Right based and patterned upon the Last Supper, the breaking of bread. And where, of course, Jesus again washed the disciples' feet, and they were shocked. 
He was acting as the servant. He served them at that meal. And this is what he will do when he comes back. And he's going to have to make us sit down. Why? Well, the story is saying that this element of unreality is because he's so thrilled they were watching. It means so much to him that we are looking for his coming. Incidentally, there's an Old Testament reference to this as well. In Zephaniah 3, verse 17, which uh, talks about how the Lord your God is in the midst of you, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful into the solemn assembly. So again, there's a solemn assembly in the last days where God gathers people, his faithful people together, and he rejoices over them. And I think it's the solemn assembly there is this, if you like, breaking of bread meeting, this, uh, this Passover supper that is going to be held in some form when the Lord comes back. And we can think about that every time we break bread. As you remember Jesus said, I won't take this wine until I take it again with you in the kingdom, that it's going to be repeated. Now, if we believe all this, if we've put meaning into these words that we're reading here and that I'm saying, then this must affect our lives. If we really seriously think that today Jesus might come, this might be the last time I put my my glasses on, last time I put my watch on my wrist, last time I comb my hair, last time I wear this shirt, because maybe Jesus is back today. If we can only keep that up, it will affect how we treat others. And so 45, he says, but if that servant shall say in his heart, and again, notice the importance of internal attitudes, if that servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, he'll begin to beat his fellow servants and to get drunk. So then, He'll live a life of self-indulgence and of aggression to others, particularly his fellow servants in the household of faith. Why? Because he thinks, my Lord is not going to come right now. If we believe he's going to come back, let's say we knew he's going to come back today or tomorrow. How would that change our attitude to each other? I believe it would. And we certainly would not be going out getting drunk. In other words, we would not be indulging ourselves. But those who do, sadly, do those things because they are not prepared to to get the point that we should live as if he's going to come back imminently. It says, verse 46, that the Lord will come suddenly for them, cut them into parts and appoint them their portion with the unbelievers. And I I take that as... uh, Meaning that at the final judgment, the ultimate punishment is not, you know, hellfire and, and you know, eyes poked out. It's just go back into the world. Go back to the guys that you go now drinking with. You wanted to be with them, not with me and not with my people. Go, go back. Just, just go be with them. But in that moment, the one thing we will all want is please, 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 please can I be in your kingdom? We don't want to go back to the world, that's for sure. Even if we're given another, what, 40, 50 years to live in the world, that would be an awful punishment. And in symbolic language, Jesus talks about weeping and uh, gnashing of teeth. Well, I don't think that's uh, symbolic. uh, And being burnt up in the fire of Gehenna. So I think he's saying that all right? He's going to just send them back into the world. But that will be such an awful punishment for them. To just exist, not in his kingdom, that it will be just unbearable. It will be like as if being burnt up forever. Not that it will work out like that physically, but that's how it will feel to them. So, finally... The Lord has talked about relationships and how if we believe that he's coming back soon, we will not be involved with the the drunkenness of this world. We will be in his household serving his children, our fellow servants. We will not beat them. We will not be harsh and aggressive and abusive in any form 
to, to his people, to our fellow servants. Uh, and he concludes his uh, section here on the same, same note. He says, verse 58, 59, that we are, as it were, going with our adversary to the, to the, uh, the magistrate, to the, to the court, to the judgment, and as we are in the way, walking with our adversary to the judgment, he says, do anything so that you resolve your, your issue with that person. Because when you get to the judgment, you're going to be uh, cast into prison and you're going to be really, really strung up and you'll be kept there till you've paid the very last mite. In other words, he's, he's assuming that when you come the day of judgment, or to, to the judgment of the magistrate, with this brother with whom you have an issue, you're going to lose the case. So he says, because of that, therefore, sort it out somehow with him or her while you're on the way to the magistrate, to the, to the court. So I think what he's saying is that we are all on our way to judgment. It's as if when we're baptized, we're told, right, you're now going to go to the day of judgment. Start walking, and we're walking towards the day of judgment. And if we've got anything against anyone else, he's saying, for crying out loud, sort it out, because if you get there, you're going to lose the case. That's for sure. Now, I understand that not always can we sort it out. There are cases, situations, attitudes of other people that we can't resolve. And they, they have this, these things against us no matter what we do. And I think Paul had that in mind, and he was an example of a brother who had a lot of people with a lot of things against him. Uh, he said, as far as lies in you, as far as depends upon you, live at peace with, with all men. As if he recognized that, well, you, you actually can't, but it must be that as far as it depends on you, you you've not, not been a doormat to people in a wrong sense, uh, but you have let this thing go. So I think what, he's saying, what the Lord Jesus is saying here is, don't take with you, in your heart at least, to the day of judgment, a case against your brother, because you're going to lose it. Don't go to judgment with that weight, carrying that with you, carrying with you a case against your brother or sister. Don't take it there. Drop it. Let it go. And so he, you can see that the progression of his thought throughout this chapter. He starts off by saying... Don't be hypocritical because day of judgment is coming when everything will be open and known. And he goes on to, to say, and don't um, worry, don't fear about witnessing openly if you're not going to be a hypocrite. Well, that means that you should preach me openly, confess me before men. So you're, you're witnessing. It should be fearless because you know that the day of judgment is coming. And then some guy totally misses the point, says, hey, Jesus, come and sort out this uh, argument I got with my brother about property. And Jesus brings the thing back to the perspective of the day of judgment and his coming by telling the story about the rich man with his bounds and all that. And he says, look, you know, this man didn't live his life in the perspective of the final day of judgment when I will gather my people into my barn, into my kingdom. He just built up his own kingdom. He should have had the perspective of my eternal kingdom and therefore not built up his own kingdom but given away what he had to prepare for himself for that future, future day. And then he, he carried on uh, and, and said, well, while I'm talking about that, don't worry about material things. You will survive if your focus is upon the life, the eternal life which is to come. You'll survive. Don't worry. You'll get through. You'll scrape through materially in this life. And he, he then uh, says that we are to, to be ready. That that is so important for him. That we are not 
uh, sidetracked by materialism, not sidetracked by anything, but that we are focused upon his imminent coming, that he could come at any moment, and he says, I'll be so thrilled if that is how I find you when, when I come back. And he says that if that's how we're going to be, focused on his imminent coming, think, living every day as if he could come today, then he says, you will not beat your fellow servant. You will not hang out with the world in, in a drunken sort of way. You won't do that. You won't beat your fellow servant because you will know that I am about to come. So he says, it will affect your relationships. And then he concludes by saying, you are walking to judgment. You are on your way. So don't take with you, at least in your heart, don't take with you any issue against your brethren. Now, in all these things, he's challenging us. To, to live like this is a challenge. And I suppose that none of us know anybody, any brother or sister who actually is completely there. Some seem closer than others. But all the same, remember what he says. You of little faith. As if he's saying, yes, I know you don't quite get it. And I know it's a colossal thing for you. But you have a little faith. And that's good. And he, he said later on, as I said, that uh, little faith can, like a grain of mustard seed, can move mountains. And he says to, to men and women who must have been listening to him gaping with jaw dropped, almost with huge disappointment at the, uh, the colossal requirements that he's putting forward, the, the height of the challenge. He comforts them and he comforts us. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he says that in the context of talking about longing for the, the coming of the kingdom, longing to be there, and he's saying, because you will be there, therefore look forward to that day with joy, with readiness, because you will be there, and don't fear, and don't worry.